Good evening. My name is Tandikam Kandawiri. Um, we're running out of time, so I will be extremely brief in my introductory remarks. Um, uh, I would, I'm, a, I'm a social scientist and um, not very good in, you know, in the subject I'm, I'm speaking about. But let me start off by saying that the, the definition that we use on youth here is the UN one, which is between 15 and 25, uh, which of course excludes me. Um, but it's, it, I, I would argue that, and, and the subject is very much around the life chances people have. You know, uh, and it's, I would argue, in fact, that much of the social sciences is about determining what are the t determinants of people's life chances. And uh, so this, the, the topic of the, of, of this, uh, of, of, of the, especially the art form, the, the art event this evening is, is, is appropriate. The issue of youth and development comes and goes. Um, uh, in, in the 60s, when there was a, a lot of concern about population growth and all that, uh, there was a tendency to view youth as uh, almost symptomatic of a coming problem of population explosion. People would look at, they would look at the youth numbers and, in, and there was concern about this was indicative of a big problem coming. And um, with, and also in some parts of the world, with the, uh, political instability, of course, youth was seen, um, in a sense, as patholo in pathological terms. And I would also argue that, uh, especially in, in parts like Latin America and, Af you know, and Africa, where uh, urbanization has been very disruptive, um, and in some cases led to uh, uh, violence, in which uh, youth have found themselves uh, trapped into, there was there's been a tendency to begin to look at youth also in security form, you know, how to control youth and so on. Fortunately, there's a, a much more positive view about youth, um, uh, where in effect there's, a, there's an interesting statement, where there have been lots of conferences organized by the UN system, but I, I, I was interested to read what uh, a statement by the World Bank about, uh, about how they view that youth, in, especially in Africa, as as a the most abundant asset. Uh, and as I said, this is quite, it's fairly new view of looking at youth, because only 20 years ago, um, the, there was a view that spending on the education of youth was not as effective as spending on, 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 on children. There was the uh, argument that the rate of return on secondary and university education was lower than primary school education. And so most governments stopped funding, uh, withdrew from funding universities, and in some cases also withdrew from secondary school, and, they, uh, and governments were forced to introduce user charges, to introduce fees for, 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 for these schools. Uh, I was at a meeting only two, three years ago when the World Bank issued a report on youth and development, and they were presenting that report at a meeting at the Open, the open University uh, uh, Conference. And I was on the panel, and I asked, and this, this, it was a very brilliant presentation by the bank on the importance of youth for development, and, and a very strong argument for it. And I, I sort of asked, well, in, in the, as a panelist, I asked the question, how does he, the bank reconcile that with the calculus they had before, which showing that it, it, didn't, you know, it didn't pay investing in, you know, in, in secondary school and uh, university? And the response we got was that this is, well, you know, there was a mathematical error. Somebody, it was a miscalculation mathematically, and that was the point he made. But anyway, <laughs> the, the good news is that there is now an acceptance that uh, this is an extremely important part of the population for future of, 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 uh, 
any country, and I would argue especially for Africa. Africa is a very young continent, um, and I know you may not believe it, <laughs> look at me, but actually Africa is very, Africa is a very young continent, and and we place a lot of faith in in the prospects uh, uh, of the continent in, you know, in the hands of the of a very dynamic youth. I, I I'm, I'm I'm glad that part of it thing that's being done this evening is also is cultural. Uh, there's perhaps no field that you will see African dynamism, of Af the, the dynamism of African youth, uh, um, as in culture. Um, uh, some, I just got a figure somewhere, I told that the third most important rap music uh, city in the world is Nairobi. And they have their own rap, their own stories, their own uh, images, and, uh, and, and in the last Last but one election, I think they were decisive in some of the of the thinking about the, the future of politics in Nairobi. So it's, it's, I think it's very important, that, among other things, we'll be doing here is have some insight of this, this culturally dynamic uh, uh, group. Having said all that, uh, I will have introduced with, with four speakers, and uh, surprisingly, very well, not surprisingly. Uh, People have been extremely creative in their, you know, in their, you know, in their lives. And I start with Espen uh, who is the founder and chief executive officer of U the UIDO. And there was Zoe, she's a senior lecturer in SOAS. And Andrew Lamb is the chief executive officer of the Engineers Without Borders. And Bromley is the founder of the World View Impact and co-founder of the Global Youth Action Networks. So at least we have Two, at least two people have founded something, and uh, and and in one who's teaching about what others have founded. <laughs> anyway, uh, so they they will they were speaking that in the order I presented them here, and I'm told you have only ten ten minutes. Thank you. Can I sit here? Thank you. So my name is Espen Berg, and I'm the CEO and founder of the United Youth Development Organization. And what I'd like to talk to you uh, about today is uh, some of the young people that we work with uh, and some of the exciting stories that, that we come about. Um, and why I would argue that young people have been a, an unused asset in development context. And if you look at history, you can see that young people have played a very important role in regards to social change and economic development. And I would argue that young people in a developing context, are been, we've, we're failing to give them the same type of role and important as, importance as you see that they've uh, had in history. And I can give some really good examples of that through what we do in, at UIDO. And to, to set a little bit of the, the context briefly of what UIDO is and why we, we set UIDO up, um, it's, it's it's regard to the, 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 the situation and the challenge that young people have in accessing employment opportunity in sub-Saharan Africa. And the the reason for that is that there's very, very limited jobs around, and the limited jobs around tend to go to adults. And when I refer to adults, I, I merely refer to those who are 25 or 26 and above. And the same goes to those people who would like to create their own employment opportunities through entrepreneurship. Um, in regards to, to microfinance. Um, microfinance, or microcredit, was put on the agenda um, relatively recently by Mohammed Yunus and the Green Bank. And it's, it's merely the concept of providing a small loan 
to an entrepreneur and some business support so they can start a business and create an income for themselves and lift themselves out of poverty. And the concept of microfinance is obviously, you know, there's, there's positives and, and negatives. Um, but Grameen Bank alone, I like the, I like the, uh, yeah, it was really good. <laughs> We <laughs> <laughs> have to share that when we're done. Uh, Green Bank alone has given uh, by 2007 they they've given out about two and a half mil or 2.8 million uh, loans to two point or 2.8 million entrepreneurs, and that is 2.8 million people who has been able to start a business as a consequence of Green Bank's involvement. Um, and. Research, however, show by USAID and the Youth Employment Program that about 60% of all microfinance organizations, so those organizations actually providing these loans, refuse to work with young people. And the reason for that is that they see young people as higher risk and higher cost than their adult peers. And the remaining microfinance organizations, they say, well, we don't, we don't necessarily differentiate on the basis of age. But we find, due to biased selection criteria, that it, as, a, as a matter of fact, young people still lose out. And you can see evidence of that through the fact that young people make up only 10% of all microfinance clients, even though young people make up the vast majority, majority of the population. In Kenya, for example, young people make up more than 60% of the entire population. And sadly, for many young people today, being out of work means lacking the opportunity to work themselves out of poverty. And I argue, personally, that this is a market failure. And let me explain why. History, or, re or, or our experience and research show that young people are just as capable of obtaining and maintaining a loan and successfully repaying a loan than, their adult, or than an adult um, entrepreneur. And in fact, a, a study just recently commissioned by the World Bank looking at microfinance in um, Indonesia revealed that younger people actually, or the youth clients, actually had higher repayment rates than their adult peers. And they were also more capable of, of maintaining a much higher loan than their adult peers. And I would argue that the reason for microfinance organizations not working with young people is not because young people are inherently prone to failure, but because of, la of this misconception of what actually young people are and, and, and the risks associated with young people and the capabilities that young people have and the opportunities that they can capitalize on. And UIDA was, as I said, set up to, to approach this market failure. And we do that in primarily in three different ways. So one way we're doing is that we're inviting young people globally, so here in the UK, for example, to raise funds and invest these funds as loans to youth entrepreneurs in Sub-Saharan Africa. What we're doing is we're access, providing access to very vital capital for microfinance organizations so they can invest it in youth entrepreneurs. The second thing we do is that we try to connect institutions on the ground with intellectual capacity globally, among young people globally. And it, running a, 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 a charity or a, a, a youth-led organization, I can, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's very, accessing to resources is very challenging and, and, and you have to always maintain operational cost and, and these type of things. So doing what you really want to do is often a challenging task. 
And what we're doing is that we're accessing young people who really would like to make a difference, really would like to use their skills and talents to the organizations on the ground so they can capitalize on them and improve their, their programs. And lastly, what we do is that we work with, with people and partners and organizations such as, for example, the LSE, and look at how we can, we can uh, provide with additional knowledge or, or uh, commission research that can add value to the programs that our development partners are running. So for example, what would a youth microfinance product look like? Um, how, can, how can you better structure these products? Or, primarily, or, or, or potentially just doing uh, a field assessment study and looking at the development returns, et cetera, et cetera. And the, the, the returns of this, I would argue, and, and we see, is, is very big. And, and let me give you some examples. Uh, firstly, 85% of the world's youth today live in developing economies. And the proportion is more likely to, to increase. So the vast majority, or at, at least in the future, the vast majority is going to be young people. So we really need to focus on, on young people. And research by the ILO and others show that young people sitting around with very limited things to do are, most like, uh, are more likely to get into illicit activities than other young people who have unemployment. And it's really simple. If you sit around, you have nothing to do, you know, you don't feel valued. You don't feel valued by society. You don't feel valued by what you do. Uh, it, you know, you need to, you try to find that value somewhere else. So you can get involved with a, a group or a gang or, or something else. Uh, and there's a lot of research actually showing that uh, a very clear link between employment and reduction of, of criminal activities. Also, I would argue, uh, and we also see this from, from the people that we work with, that young people are much more likely to adapt to innovative solutions and technologies. For example, uh, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. And you've seen this in Iran and Burma, and now recently Venezuela, where they've used these mediums and social mediums to uh, report incidents, where things that are happening within their countries to the wider, wider audience, and there's become this international attention to it that potentially has put pressure on the governments and, 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 and created a, 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 a different accountability mechanism. Um, and, and this is very much an emerging field, and I'm, I'm very interested in seeing how that, how that can evolve in the future. And I must say also, you know, young people are idealistic and driven, and they believe for, for, for something better, and sometimes unrealistically so. But I would argue that you know, it's better to aim for the aim for the stars and hit the roof than try to aim for the roof and never leave the floor. And I can tell you as a founder, and I'm sure that, that Bremley would say the same, there's been so many times that, that people have said, well, you can't do that, and you know, that's not possible. But you need a little bit of that, you know, that youthful drive that say, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And not everyone succeeds, but you know, many people succeed, and many people manage to create a lot of important change. And you also see, actually, it's a fact, there's a lot of young and, and social movements that have been taking place on the ground, where what's been driven by young people. You see, for example, in regards to apartheid in, in South Africa, there was a lot of very peaceful social, social movements driven by young people, and actually creating a lot of attention on these issues, uh, and, 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 and creating social change. And from an economic perspective, uh, halving, uh, the, the ILO says that halving the world's youth un unemployment rate would, could estimate uh, a 2.2 to 3.5 trillion dollars addition to the world economy 
uh, indicating, with the, with the vast majority of this actually taking place in sub-Saharan Africa, indicating 2 to 90% two to gain in GDP. So that is really, really heavy. And they actually argue that investing in young people has a much, much higher economic return than investing in adults. Wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> we can do that during the question time. Um, and, and in regards to the innovation and, and young people getting involved in innovation, we see that with the, the, the people that we're working with, that um, the examples of, 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 of young people getting into very innovative uh, businesses, and you can also see that in the modern uh, or in, in the economies that, that we're in today with, with YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as I mentioned, all being actually started by young people. And, and relatively recently, they were uh, ranked as the, the highest and most, uh, the biggest brand in, in, in the world. Um, so, you know, th these, are, these are really um, organizations with, with a big impact. And, and young people also bring a lot of, of, of new perspectives. Uh, I, I recently worked in a, or, or for a time back, worked in an investment bank, and that was actually the, what, what they were looking for um, as, as the, the, the highest return of having interns and having young people in the organization. It's the way that young people come and look at something and, and, and look, look at it from a new perspective, and they might not be set in their ways. And, and the list goes on. I, I can talk about this forever, but, but I just want to give some, some examples. So. Uh, so what are some of the ways that, that, that other organizations and, and you guys can get involved in young people? Well, firstly, uh, if you're a company, organization, uh, or a not-for-profit organization, and you'd like to get more involved in young people, then I, I'd like to invite you to get involved in youth-led organizations such as, such as Gaian, Engineers Without Borders, UEDO, and, there's, and all the others organiza other organizations that are around there. And, and, and you know, ask for advice and, 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 and work with them and, and, and see how you can add value to some of the work that they're doing. And if you're an individual, uh, there's a lot of young people here studying and, and there's opportunities uh, for being involved in, in youth-led organizations. And a lot of these organizations offer uh, quite, uh, quite a lot of responsibility to youth and, um, um, uh, interns or, or young people actually driving the entire organization. But mostly, uh, if, you're, if, if you're here from a, from a development organization, we would, I would really like, uh, invite you to, to talk to young people and ask for their advice and include them in the decision-making process. And DFID actually did a very big study on, on youth and development uh, where uh, they created a, a how-to guide for organizations with the civil society on how, uh, how young people and organizations can include young people in the decision-making process and develop, um, uh, develop uh, 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 being a boy and think of two things at the same time doesn't it? <laughs> and de develop uh, highly efficient programs. Anyway, so, so that's for me. And uh, thank you for listening. And uh, I'll invite you to Zoe.
um, event. So when I was doing a PhD, which I did at an incredibly illustrious university um, called the LSE, I was told that luck was the forbidden fruit of academe. I think I was wanting to call my PhD, you know, luck or something at the time. I was going one of those minimalist phases. So if that, the point is that if something is attributed to luck, what it is is that there's more to be discovered. Uh, people may have reasons to keep mechanisms behind this word luck a little bit uh, mysterious, to keep uh, responsibility hidden, or maybe use luck as a metaphor for something else. So with regard to the idea of a lottery of life, I think which particular human body we find ourselves in probably is luck. I'm thinking this goes like beyond scientific explanation. Uh, science doesn't really explain why it is that I found myself to be me. This is quite profound, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> but to many of us, it's not actually very problematic. We don't care who our ancestors are. We don't care where we go to after we die. So why would it matter why it is that I happen to be me? And while the fact of me being me does, I think, fall between the cracks of enlightenment, th uh, enlightenment thinking, there are a lot of reasons for the world being the way that it is. And we need to look a little bit further than this notion of luck. At a societal level, there are patterns that emerge. And there can be some guile uh, involved in presenting these patterns in certain ways rather than others. The observation, for example, that uh, life expectancy at birth is 78 in the United Kingdom and 46 in Sierra Leone is presented as an ind indicator of development. It's kind of unlucky for some people. The suggestion is that the UK has done something right and possibly that Sierra Leone has done something wrong or may have something to learn from the UK. The implication is not very strongly that the UK has done something wrong to Sierra Leone uh, and that Sierra Leone is the victim. So describing patterns, sorry, or even detecting them involves the simplification of events. And much of development analysis is, a bit, is about deciding what in this mass of available information is significant and what is less significant. And this necessarily involves some selection and some simplification, and there's a danger that this becomes reductionist, and that the indicators take on a kind of metaphorical mystery um, and uh, become representative and interpretive whilst claiming to be a kind of hard scientific fact. And the history, including the contemporary history of development studies, is replete with examples, particularly of how economics has, de has dominated the analysis of development to the extent that it's taken on this pra practically magical status in analytical and explanatory terms. Uh, economic analysis is representative of a high standard of living, for example, uh, is representative of a functioning market, of people's incentive sometimes to go to war. Privileging certain forms of information as facts simultaneously privileges a certain perspective and with it a certain methodology and a certain response. Some people who are most bound up with the literal explanations of lives, of life, are the ones who are most confounded by their own little mysteries of what is real and what is representative of it. And ultimately, luck may be a metaphor that allows some people to escape responsibility, to shortcut an explanation 
of why things are how they are and who caused them to be like that. The bad luck of bad governance or bad economic management. Uh, this locates problems exclusively at a national level. It privileges a perspective and a response that can be given to that bad luck situation. The bad luck of bad weather, flooding, droughts, the loss of agricultural land focuses on how to intervene and how to rebuild rather than what the causes of climate change is and who is responsible for them. And in fact, an entire canon of development uh, exists that overlooks issues of the mechanisms by which inequalities are achieved, uh, the functions they serve, and the violence that they embed, the impact of environmental degradation on the prospects of genu genuine forms of development taking place, for example, uh, means that there's a cozy world of luck surrounding um, much of the analysis and much of the policy work in development. All of these, this needs to be scrutinized in more detail, and it's not an awful lot to do with luck. Okay, so that's the luck side of it. I'm go now going to talk about art, um, kind of in reverse. I tried to make the analysis like um, <coughs> mirror each other. I'm not sure if I really um, managed that. But art is kind of allowed to be mysterious, at least on the surface. That's the job of art. Fundamentally, though, many artists are distinctly less mysterious than many discourses on development. Artists are often aware that there's not a single perspective, but of the interaction of things, the way that power shapes resistance, the way that force shapes and, um, and causes cunning. Capoeira is a Brazilian art form of dance, fight and play that was developed by slaves from Brazil, so slaves in Brazil, and it's both representative and shaping of the history and the culture uh, of, um, of their existence. There's a capoeira song that goes, who says that slavery is wrong? Without slavery, there would be no capoeira. It's a similar perspective to Marx's tragic view of history, actually, but slightly more succinctly put. Um, there's another song that goes, who gave you so much shelter? Who taught you the beauty of dancing within a fight? Some of the finest artistic expression has come from people and cultures with extreme experiences of suffering. It's both generated and consumed in times of distress. It's both expressive and explanatory, and it's rousing and palliative at the same time. Some of the most violent and abusive experiences have given voice to expressions of music, dance, art, and poetry. So this seems to me to be a good reason to commend very highly the work uh, of the artists uh, which is on display tonight. And I would encourage everybody who's involved in thinking about analyzing uh, policy work, policy writing, and practice of development to accommodate creativity and expression in their thinking alongside the quest for hard facts. Art reminds us that development is about people and their interaction uh, with others and with social and political institutions, their interaction with physical geography, uh, with opportunities, uh, and also with limitations. It reminds us uh, of our place within the process of development, um, that they are contested and can be conflictual processes it's not about defining what is out there, uh, but about interpreting what is happening between. So while the discourse of development tends to take what is literal, what is lived experience, and make it metaphorical through a selection uh, procedure and a tendency towards reductionism, which is comprehensible to a minority who are empowered by this process of knowledge generation, 
it appears um, that art actually reverses this process. Art appears to be metaphorical and re representative and makes it literal. It makes it a lived experience as we uh, engage with a piece of art that's in front of us. Art says things that cannot be said in mainstream discourse. It interacts with power uh, and that is accepted knowledge and it forges its own resistance. So I have to rail a little tiny bit against the title of this talk, The Lottery of Life. Life is not a lottery, it's a struggle. There's no big tombola, we don't have a choice about whether we're going to play or not. And the conditions of inequality are not genuinely mysterious. Uh, they're particularly unmysterious to people who are born into poverty and who have no incentive to deny the power structures that have generated their conditions of marginalization. Uh, this is a conflict that we need to acknowledge in our debates and our analysis. And in doing so, we experience and we reinterpret our own role within that conflict and the role of other people. Thank you. Um, thank you for inviting me along tonight. Thank you for uh, coming along. Um, Congratulations on the uh, exhibition and for your appointment here at LSE. Um, I wanted to uh, tell you a little bit about uh, Engineers Without Borders to start off with. That'll take about 15 seconds. And then I wanted to put, plant some ideas in your heads about you know, some of my take on, on youth and development, given that the people involved in Engineers Without Borders, apart from me, are normally in the age range of 15 to 25. Um, Engineers Without Borders is an international development organisation run by young engineers. Um, with young engineers taking part, it's based at 30 different universities around the country. And the whole idea is to share skills. Some of the things that we've developed, some our members have developed, have been um, devices like um, uh, nipple protector devices that help reduce the uh, transmission of HIV and AIDS from um, mother um, to child. Uh, during breastfeeding. Uh, we've developed GIS maps of um, cities like Pune with some of our partners over there so that the city authorities can um, understand what goes on in the slums and how to provide infrastructure. Um, we've uh, worked on rope washer pumps in Sierra Leone and so on. And the, the whole idea is that we share some of the skills that we learn here in the UK um, with people overseas. I think um, youth involvement in international development and where our organisations come from has come from a very humanitarian place in terms of wanting to help other human beings and so on. It's come from a very awkward place as well to kind of um, Western youth adolescent quest for meaning in life um, in amongst this kind of the comfort and consumerism and the trivia of Western lifestyles, you know. And uh, our organisation was kind of formed as a reaction to uh, the kind of the gap year industry and some of, some of people's experiences on their gap years. And we set out to be as professional an organisation as an organisation that isn't run by young people, an organisation that isn't run by volunteers. And we've developed after a great deal of introspection over the last nine years an approach to development volunteering that we're actually quite proud of, we're quite happy with now. Although I'm, I know many ways it could be improved still. 
we're beginning to look at some of the greater challenges now. And one of the biggest problems in terms of, I mean, I, I would argue this because I'm an engineer, of course, but one of the biggest barriers to development in um, many countries, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa, is just the drastic shortage of engineers in a population. You know, the, that many countries are dependent on foreign aid in order to be able to build basic infrastructure like water supply because they haven't got the people in the country who can build it themselves. And um, one of the ways that we're trying to, we're exploring about how we might overcome that is, you know, exchanges. Um, you know, the idea of teaching engineering in developing countries. We're starting to explore that with some projects this summer. Um, we found that our young engineers, students from, um, I don't think from LSE, but from other uh, universities uh, around the country, actually kind of helped to inspire and prepare kind of a peer learning exercise with other young people in developing countries and help them to understand, you know, more, you know how technology can be used to fight poverty in themselves uh, in their own context. But I think the sharing of skills has other positive benefits and that kind of cultural exchange um, is particularly important with the idea that, you know, we form deeper, broader understandings of other cultures, of other customs, of the way our world is that tends to go much, you know, further beyond media, stere media stere stereotyping of um, other cultures. Um, it help, helps to build tolerance, it helps to build friendships across borders. There's a recent book by um, Eric uh, Kaufman that um, made me think about this because he's putting forward evidence that in the West, um, the demographic trends show that actually the population isn't increasing in the more kind of liberal and secular parts of the community here in the UK and in the US. That actually the population growth here in the UK and the US, in Australia and so on, tends to be in the communities that hold um, more fundamentalist religious views. And um, so if we're looking at that, that kind of change here in the Western culture over the next um, 40 years, I think we can um, begin to uh, un understand some of the importance of that cultural exchange and building tolerance. And a, a DEA Ipsos Mori poll recently actually put out that um, for the first time it kind of collected some data, the idea that getting some um, global learning in initiatives with young people here in the UK helps to um, improve UK at attitudes towards um, other races and other religions, uh, towards taking social action, getting involved in development and in your own community, but also building support for international development. So for the sake of our own society, you know, it's good for young people to be involved in international development, to get involved. Um, and get access to that kind of international learning. Um, and if we can harness um, those young people to actually make a difference in developing countries working with other young people at the same time, then, you know, the UK, the, the UK benefits, the uh, global society benefits. So the problem is that I think in the UK the uh, government has only um, partially recognised this as an opportunity, youth as an opportunity in development. Complete this sentence. 51% um, of the world's population is. Asleep. Asleep. <laughs> Female.
Another answer would be urban. 51% of the world's population is urban. 51% of the world's uh, uh, population, 51% of the world's population, according to UNFPA, is under the age of 25. And despite that fact, there's very little emphasis on youth in development at the policy level from DFID and in their latest white paper, which actually I have to say a lot of um, youth-based organisations here in the UK did, you know, made a contribution towards uh, as part of their consultation. They mentioned the word youth precisely zero times. Um, they mentioned young people ten times. Uh, but most of those are in reference to reducing uh, crime and conflict in fragile states. There are 82 references to women, 70 references to children, 10 references to men, and I just couldn't count the number of references to urban cities, urban environments and cities. For reasons that still elude me, uh, the Foreign Secretary, David Miliband, visited our office a couple of weeks ago. Um, <laughs> that's the right, Dave. Fancy seeing you here. Um, and it, was, it became quite clear to me that actually youth issues are very much a part of um, UK foreign policy. Um, you know, uh, the idea that a uh, significant 60% of the proportion of Kenya, population of Kenya are under the age of 25. Well, a similar um, proportion uh, can be found in Iran and in Pakistan, which is important to the Foreign Office. Um, I haven't quite figured out why the development community hasn't noticed this yet. I think we need more good examples of youth involvement in development, um, both, as uh, Espen was saying, in developing countries, but also in the UK. And I think we need to uh, develop more in terms of good practice, so the how-to guides that DFID has been working on is a good start. Because um, I think we need to change this, because it's, it's too big an opportunity to miss. Thank you very much. Um, instead of me speaking, I'm going to present two case studies for you. One is like a spin-off from Columbia University. Well, it's, it's a non-profit, so, but, but in the US they call them non-profit companies. And one is kind of a spin-off of the London School of Economics, and then we can have a little, I'll explain the bridge between the two, and then we can have question and answers. So you can load up the first one.
that was I'll be loading up, loading up the second one. That was the Global Youth Action Network, and of course, uh, it's based in New York, uh, two blocks away from the United Nations. And now we're working in all UN member states, including places like Taiwan and other territories. But the goal of the Gaian <coughs> was to bring together young people from. Uh, minority countries, developing countries who have no voice at the United Nations and hence we were the only youth organization that was two blocks down from the UN. But it was a long journey because um, we didn't have funding. This was just at the time when I was at Columbia University and like Espen said, we have to be driven by passion. And how do you do that when you're living in one of the most expensive cities in the world and being a student at the same time? Uh, but now we have uh, created um, projects in 75 countries every year, funded through the World Bank and Inter-American Development Bank. We bring young people on their official delegations uh, to the United Nations every year. And it's supported by governments, which is really amazing. But that was the history of Guyan. Now it's running by itself. I don't have to be in New York. And the young, the young people, the younger generation have taken it over and expanded at the country level. But what I want to show you is, um, uh, is it this one? yeah, that one, is what happened next. Uh, no, not that one, I'm sorry. It's a movie, Element. Yeah, that's the one, you're right. what next when you uh, start a social entrepreneurship. I'll explain you the, the difference between a social enterprise and a charity in the US. So we can watch this first and we can go. sacred forests in Meghalai, India, so really taking care of the trees is in my blood. But all this seems so far away from London. I need to be here to get my social enterprise going. We're going to plant millions of trees starting from seven countries to fight climate change. I've got to get investors to get my plans underway. I know it's worth it, but sometimes I feel so disconnected from where it's all happening. I really need to get back on the road, get back in touch with why I'm doing this. It's all starting here in Sri Lanka. We've got one tree nursery going. I haven't seen it yet, but I can imagine it. Hey, elephant boy! Rubber trees grow fast here. I'm like Spider-Man, spinning my web. <laughs> First we plant them, then when they're five years old, we'll be able to tap them and make things like surgical gloves and condoms out of the rubber. Oh boy, smells really bad. <laughs> the trees will absorb carbon from the atmosphere and the rubber will give jobs to the people here. So you're fighting climate change and poverty. <laughs> At least that's how it works in theory. 
We're off to our little nursery. This is the first time where I'm going there, so it's very exciting. This is the base, this is the launch pad. Wow, it's a nice place. This is what I've been dreaming about. Actually nice seeing it happen. It's a long time. <laughs> nice meeting you, Roger. These seedlings are like my babies. How old are these? Two weeks? One week old. It's only a few seedlings now, but eventually there'll be millions of trees. And not just in Sri Lanka. We want to do organic plantations in at least six countries, including India. My heart is set on making it happen in India. I want to go home. My clan's sacred forest is one of the only forests that's still standing here. All the trees around it have been cut down, and you know, this used to be the rainiest place on earth. But now, with no trees around, it's like a desert. That's why it's important for me to plant here. Getting the plantations going in India is going to be much harder. I have to convince the local chiefs to let us plant trees on their land. If they don't agree, the whole project could fail. And I really don't want that. Finally home, sweet home. I can prepare myself, just got a little time. I'm really nervous because I think it's going to be really hard to make the cheese work together. I really hope I can make this take off. First of all, I want to take this opportunity and thanking each and every one of you for coming to this first meeting. The chiefs are interested, but it will take a lot of trust for us to work together. They're a bit worried because things have gone wrong in the past. I need to convince them that this will work and even change people's lives, including mine. I met Chandra at the Sri Lankan nursery. This is your land. Oh, thank you for hosting our little babies in your land. He showed me how everything worked there. Well, tried to. <laughs> I just threw the bucket with the rope in the well. <laughs> he's my age, but he's an orphan. Oh my God, I'm so sorry, drop your bucket. He has to look after his four siblings, but he was unemployed before. He told me that being a rubber expert was his dream. And now his dream is coming true. And now he's making my dream come true by taking care of the nursery. If the chiefs agree, then maybe there could be more people like Chandra. It was amazing. Just for a group of five, six people. We have close to about 3,000 hectares already. It looks like we're going to be planting trees at home again. Life in London doesn't seem so disconnected now. I know that there are people out there who believe in this like I do. It's early days, but we're starting to make things better. It's always easy to destroy things, and it's very hard to create and regenerate things. And that's what we're in, this business. It's regenerate and recreate and save the planet. to speak anymore because that tells a story. We're going to go straight to question and answers. But one is an LSE spin-off company or social enterprise, and one was born at Columbia University in New York. So you can imagine 
jugglings to finish your papers and attending lectures and trying to operationalize your research on the ground because what's the use of having a thesis when it sits in the library? in the LSE library and it means no difference to the people you've been investigating and doing research. So it was a challenge for my dad. So he said, walk your own talk so, and practice what you preach. So that's what we've been trying to do. More information, worldviewimpact.com or youthling.org. Thank you very much. with the last presentation as well with the other uh, speakers. Thanks so much uh, for this massive uh, contribution. Uh, how do you um, integrate sustainability in these programs like the one, the practical one on the ground? Because I did not uh, see any youth uh, present, only elders and adults in that video. Um, is there any curriculum implementation uh, plan in your strategy? Um, to sustain such project? Thank you. I'll take more, two more questions. Um, speaking as uh, one of the older people here, just wondering, um, do you find that uh, the older generation um, are uh, helpful to um, your cause or uh, get in the way? <laughs> one more question. Yeah, thanks again for the presentations. Um, a question sort of regarding the ideas of youth unemployment. Um, you were mentioning how that's, I think the first guy that spoke was mentioning about that's sort of the main aim of your organization. Um, then you also talked about, say, getting involved with your organization through the use of interns. Do you see any sort of inherent contradiction there in so much as so much of international development and so many organizations rely on unpaid intern labor in the West? Um, 
while at the same time advocating for employment overseas. Thanks. general questions, so any one of you can answer the part that we feel is applies to. And be very brief, we don't have much time, so um, if you want, can yeah. My reply um, on the sustainability front, for one of the, I'll give you an example, um, one of the uh, projects, the water supply project that we did in Ecuador, um, what we uh, did is actually uh, train up um, some local um, uh, chaps about 20 years old. Um, in, in how to um, uh, test the quality of the water and uh, a cooperative has been set up to fund their salaries. So this is it's covering quite a wide region and actually it's that kind of distance travelling um, uh, actually quite suits them. They've got a bit of an uh, adventure spirit to them. Um, are the older generation helpful? Uh, yes, most of the time. Uh, there's, there's a kind of a gap um, there's people who are kind of uh, in their 70s and 80s and, um, you know, uh, got, got mud on their boots at the time of, kind of the end of the empire and, you know, the, the, the uh, independence of many countries. And um, they are incredibly helpful to us. Um, but the, there's been kind of generation, uh, decades of development. And a lot of the people, you know, uh, of that age were involved in a decade of development where big infrastructure projects or appropriate technology, the 70s and the 80s, was actually quite important. In the 90s, we started moving towards more kind of governance and transparency approach, mainly because of many of the failures of infrastructure projects and of you know, Africa being littered with pumps that don't work. Um, so the people who are the middle management and the senior managers and NGOs now um, are quite uh, resistant to the idea of technology being useful in development. Um, they're beginning to realise now that actually it doesn't matter how much good governance you've got if you don't have water, you know. Uh, so they're waking up to that again. On youth unemployment, um, the, uh, yes, there is a contradiction that we depend on volunteers. There is, there, there is this um, uh, kind of drive a lot of people to commit anyway. And I think we may, may overuse that. I've got an intern in the office at the moment who are actually a lot more generous than most organisations because it's young people writing in terms of reference. We kind of identify with what, what they need. But the, um, we've set up, you know, I'm employed now because of this organisation. And um, I'm hoping it's not just because no one else would have me. Um, but I think that on, the, on a wider point, um, if you look at uh, where a lot of engineers go, um, a lot of them, when they want to get involved in international development, they, try, they think about going to work for Oxfam, say for children, or the UN. Um, actually, in terms of where most aid money go goes, it goes into engineering companies um, to provide big infrastructure projects. So I tell them to go and get a job in their own profession, you know, and actually change the system, you know, the big system out there in the world so that it becomes more focused on poverty reduction. Do it as a day job. Okay, I'll take all the three questions, starting from the last one. The first. Very briefly. First of all, about using young people as free labor. I mean, talking from experience, I first started with an internship with the UNDP in India, and then was hired as a consultant at the UN headquarters in New York, and then later realized that young people are valuable, and at the World Bank, they actually pay their interns. But it's amazing that only less than 5% 
of UN staff are under 30 years of age. The United Nations has not hired any young people in the past 30 years because they rather use consultants on a hire and fire basis with no status at the UN. Because once you get a UN job, you don't retire till you're 60. And there's so many people that are working for free just to put their foot on the door, flying all the way to New York and Geneva. I wonder if all the interns were to leave the UN system, it will collapse. It will really collapse. Even the ILO was not even paying the interns. I'm like, oh my god, this is the International Labour Organization, for God's sake, pay your interns. So a group of interns got together and they got the ILO to pay them. So I think it's just the World Bank and the ILO that pay the UN interns. Addressing the intergeneral partnership, which is very key because I think young people can't do it alone. They need mentors, they need advisors, and have that link because we had this model about Guyan, but without the United Nations endorsing us to get EcoSoc status, we could not consult with governments. It took me about a month to finish an application, about 500 pages, so intimidating, to prove that we were active at a global scale, had to lobby 12 countries that sit on the EcoSoc status with each minister, convince them that it was important for young people to have a voice and consult with governments in all UN conferences. But that took a while. But it, when they were convinced, we actually got the vote in the ECOSOC to get ECOSOC status so we could consult and have youth representatives from any country to come and negotiate directly with all governments at every UN forum. Regarding the sustainability question, uh, my research in the LSE looked at the impact of climate change and deforestation and livelihood strategies. So I was targeting women and children in Northeast India, where I come from. But obviously, my findings shows that unless you have some sort of a sustainable, viable enterprise which could mitigate climate change by creating sustainable green jobs for young people, especially those living in the rural areas, to reduce poverty, thereby your environmental input is climate change mitigation through reforestation or agroforestry or renewables, creating those green jobs at the base as an economic development uh, uh, opportunity and reducing poverty as a social opportunity and to operationalize that I thought Sri Lanka was perfect because it's a land of conflict, the war just ended and that young man that gave the land for the nursery is an orphan but he has five sisters and his dream was to be a rubber planter but he didn't have the money, he only had five hectares of land so I said can you host the first nursery for the trees because they need nine months to grow before you can take them to the plantation. He said yes and I can employ all my sisters and that was his dream so all his little sisters are employed and they are all you know very young. So now we have now 200 people on the ground operationalizing 5,000 hectares in Sri Lanka alone. And hopefully right. we can scale this to Africa and Latin America. Thank you. Um, yeah, sure. Um, uh, in regards to older generation being helpful or not, um, definitely uh, very helpful. And you uh, know, we emphasize the use of mentors and, and working with older people because I think that you know you need both. Uh, you know older people as well as young people to create sustainable change and, and, and both um, age groups have have characteristics that adds value to uh, the situation in different different ways I think that you know older people tend to you know we need to work on changing perspectives I think that's really important and, and if you talk to anyone it's always you know young people they're always you know getting worse and they're always you know when I was young it wasn't like this and, and you know people have said that for Hundreds of years, and you know, it's 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 we we need to we need to maintain that view of young people that we have when we're young ourselves, and that you know the way that we see that that we can add value. 
Uh, in regard to youth, un youth unemployment, I, I absolutely agree with you. UIDO set up to, what we do is that we provide with loans to, to young people so they can um, start their own business and, and create an income for themselves. Um, but it's, it's, to be honest, it's very much a, a, a question of resources for, for, our, for our perspective. You, I know Engineers Without Borders, as well as UIDO, is run by young people, and Guyan is run by young people too. So they're young people actually making the decision-making process. But being a not-for-profit organization, it's, it's difficult to get the resources to, to scale up the way that you want to do, and, and, and we'd definitely hire a lot more young people if we had the ability to do it. But we give young people a lot of, a lot of responsibility. Um, uh, that's for sure. In regards to sustainability, uh, that's one of the reasons we, we focus on employment and, and microfinance. Because we necessarily do not you know, think that microfinance is, 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 is the only solution. It's a very, com you know, poverty is a complex problem and you need, you need a lot of uh, different factors to play in. But in, as, as if you give a loan and they start their own business, they can repay the loan and, and you can then, you know, they have a viable business and having an income for themselves and that can affect their situation in multiple ways, but we can also invest that loan in another set of youth entrepreneurs. So in a sense, you, you, you know, you can reach the uh, sustainability and scale. Thanks. Yeah, uh, one, one, one more round of questions. wondering if any of you could give some comments on something that you've lightly touched upon but not quite explored. Uh, what are the specific challenges of involving young people in international development? Is there something that you have to specifically take into account that, that really differs from adults and people that are young but not so young? Any, any more questions? Hi, um, thanks for the presentation. Um, uh, you mentioned that the Indian government was, um, obviously it was difficult to fill in the application in the first place, but they were reasonable enough to allow you to carry out the work that you did. Um, with other governments, you might not have that room for improvement and development and innovation. Um, so does that mean that the youth in those particular countries um, don't have the opportunity that Allah would allow them to thrive later on? One more question is for somebody. Uh, Hi. Um, we. Um, um, thanks. I just wanted to take the opportunity to mention the DFID CSO Youth Working Group that both Bremley and Andrew are involved in. Um, which the DFID how-to guide um, on youth participation was mentioned earlier, the network actually produced that guide. Um, we try to increase youth participation within DFID's work and to um, put youth on the map in terms of the development work in other countries and part of the, um, the guide was part of that work. Um, we're looking to get more young people involved in this network, so if anyone is interested in getting involved, then please come and talk to me afterwards. Thank you. Um, our, for the past couple of years, we've worked um, in the Kibera slum in Nairobi, and uh, we've seen uh, some mothers and children being taken out of the slum, and 
they've set up a uh, farm outside of the slum, which is amazing. Um, but what we what like we've really struggled with is um, obviously the practicalities of setting up a microfinancing scheme is. Um, I mean, like we know what they are, but what's what's really challenging we found is the attitudes of the um, of the people we're trying to help. Because obviously, living in um, a slum and just obviously it's a very hard life, but not working is the easier option. And what we've really struggled with is how to change the attitudes of these people that we're trying to help in order to, for them to help themselves. And I just wondered how you how you guys would like just yeah, dealing with like trying to change attitude. Question. Uh, I think it touches on everything, but uh, it's all it's great what uh, you're all doing, providing uh, in a sense services and mechanisms for young people to uh, realize or pave their own the ways of their own futures, but what prospect do you see of uh, this idea that 51% of the earth is under, is between 15 and 25, what prospect do you see of that uh, idea being uh, injected into the governments and the policy makers that are in control of the systemic problems that lead to what uh, the reason for talking about all of this? One question. Well, one of the, one of the problems, um, also international organisations, whether they're NGO or not, has been this sort of north-south divide. That you're coming from the north with money, and that you may perhaps the, the your biggest challenge would be other youth who resent you're coming there with you know with big money. And how do you relate that with the, with the local youth? Um, yeah. Um, in regards to um, your question, Tandika. Uh, we, what UIDO does is, is very much, in a sense, a, a, a broker, uh, if, if that's the word you can use. So, so we're not actually not, and it kind of touches into your question as well, it, we're actually not implementing the programs on the ground ourselves. What we're merely trying to do is work with the microfinance organizations that are already there and, and, and try to incentivize them to work with young people. Um, primarily through, uh, you know, uh, uh, capacity building and, and access to uh, financial uh, assistance through, um, uh, you know, very um, competitive loans, etc. So uh, I absolutely, I ac absolutely agree with you that you know the only the only thing that you know can develop Africa is Africans themselves. So so it's it's really important to have that view when when you know when you work with people. Um, and also, um, to, uh, uh, in regards to specific challenges working with young people, uh, I, I would say experience, because that's one thing that being youth, that, that's one thing that is a, is, a, is, is a challenge, because young people haven't lived as long as adults and potentially you know, haven't experienced as much. But, but it's, not a, it's not a challenge, and, and I, I think that you know, what we need to do is that we need to create an environment where young people can, we, we can utilize the strengths of young people while you know, limit the challenges or alleviate the challenges. Um, and, and you can very much do that. You know, we do that, or the, 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 the organizations that we work with do that through like, mentoring programs, etc. And, and we think that that's really important. And we also in, uh, encourage the people that work within the organization to also take on mentors themselves because you, know, you can, you can kind of 
uh, mix the two. Um, yeah, I think it was that all the questions, I think. Yeah? Um, I just want to address that political engagement of youth. Three billion people on the planet are under 25 years of age. And 70%, 85% of them live in developing countries like India and China. Iran has 70% or 75% youth. But the people that control Iran are the mullahs. They have all the power. Uh, the Burmese government has shut down all the school and universities in Burma because they're scared of a student uprising because they knew that the students would support Aung San Suu Kyi and bring the military might down. You've seen that. It's been done. But what's interesting is that how do you engage these young people in the South? I'm mean, coming from the Global South myself and meeting the co-founder of the Global Youth Action Network in, in The Hague. When we were talking about The Hague Appeal for Peace, he was standing with a big banner there saying that youth can change the world. I went up to him and said, how, how, how are you going to do that? He said, well, I want to invite other young people from developing countries. But I said, how will your model from the United States be applied to somewhere in India or Africa. What about the agenda of the young people in Latin America and Africa and Asia may be different. So he said, why don't we work together? Because we, we form the two largest democracies on the planet. I said, yeah, democracies. But if you look at Obama's election and the way young people use technology, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or all social media, he was using his blackberry himself. I think if we engage young people to stop complaining but actually vote, at least those young people who are between the ages of 18 to 30, to exercise their right, to vote for the right leaders who speak and carry their voice, perhaps we can have a better world. In India, we have 350 million people under the age of 30. That's the size of the United States. But I don't know how many of them actually vote or care about elections. We complain a lot. But to really engage and change policy and be active in government, I don't say that we need to be elected and be parliamentarians, but I think what Guyan tried to do was bring them to the UN as official youth reps, holding their prime ministers and presidents accountable on what they say to the UN, and going back to their parliaments, holding them accountable as vote blocks to fund those projects that have been talking about. All the MDGs, Target 16 of goal number eight, talks about creating sustainable partnership and jobs for young people. How many jobs have they actually created since they signed the MDGs in 2000, and now it's already 2010? So it's interesting to look at youth as a resource rather than, you know, portray in the media that everything about young people is violence and crime and drugs and shooting and nice. It's really sad. This, the, the real stories, the success stories don't sell. And that needs to change, I think. Thank you. Um, there are quite a lot of questions there, but I think the point on changing attitudes, the, the example of your work in Kibera, um, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer that right now, but I'd love to be able to talk about it afterwards at the exhibition, if that's okay. And um, I think um, the thing that I do want to, to pick up on is the, uh, uh, the fifth question on, on policymakers and opportunities and progress with policymakers. Um, in my experience of this, um, the, there's kind of like policymakers don't react well to hippies or to like, people who look like hippies. And most of them are hippies themselves at some point. <laughs> but they've stopped, they don't like talking to people who necessarily you know, are wearing sandals and dreadlocks and slogans on t-shirts and things. So I tend to wear a shirt and a suit quite a lot when I meet policy makers. Um, and that's one of the real problems, I think, with a lot of um, engagement between uh, youth organizations and policy makers is that from the very start there's a culture clash the people in suits and the people in sandals, you know. 
Um, I mean, there is an advantage that a lot of engineers wear suits and sandals at the same time. <laughs> but um, I, I think it, you know, we, I think we need to get past that cultural kind of uh, problem there. The um, World Bank has done a lot of work um, in its 2006 report that Tandika mentioned, which helped that. Um, I just think that the, uh, it's going to need a lot more sustained action. Um, a graduate of this university, um, Manoush Shafiq, who's the permanent secretary at DFID, um, when, um, as Hannah mentioned, the CSO group that uh, we were working with, she wrapped up that day by saying, the older generation have done so much for you. You know, you've, you know polio is eradicated. And, and she mentioned the, the use of the iPod and really great mobile phones and things. And to, uh, to, to quote Warren Ellis, um, having a nice robotic phone is not an acceptable substitute for a future. You know, we, I think one, and that goes back to the first question for me, which is, you know, specific challenges of, work, of working with young people. Um, young people have a lot to learn, and a lot of it is based on intuition and on feelings, uh, rather than on knowledge and skill sets. And that's particularly important as an engineer when you're actually, you know, saying, yes, this water's safe to drink or whatever. We've got to, and we do a lot of training to help with that. But the kind of points that you were making in your presentation about art, you know, is actually quite powerful because the young people get involved from a place of feelings, from a place of intuition, and in my experience, they either come from a place of love and they want to embrace the world and kind of get those uh, um, exchanges with young people in other countries happening, or from a place of anger. And, you know, whether it's raging against the world that we are inheriting from the people who've come before us, the baby boomers, or whether it's um, raging of the inequalities in the world or, or whatever. And the problem is that unless you can channel that, unless you can find a meaningful way for them to solve those sorts of problems and find an expression for that, you end up with something really quite depressing, which is a disenfranchised and a disillusioned generation of young people who think that actually all I can do in life is take care of myself because I've tried everything else, I've tried to be involved. And the development sector has to do better at engaging with young people, at realizing they do have something to offer. At providing opportunities, maybe, yes, internships and volunteering, uh, volunteering placements and so on. But I think um, a lot of young people engage from a place of emotion, whether it's love or whether it's anger or whatever the motivation may be. And we have to try and find ways to embrace that and channel that. Well, um Yeah. Mm -hmm.